0: Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction.
1: Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic.
0: We provide care to adults 18 plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee.
1: And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute.
0: All right, hey everyone. We're here today with AJ, and so I'll start like I do every other time. AJ, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, what led you to Pride Doors?
2: Um, so I entered Pride IOP actually in like late fall of 2016. I had gone to inpatient um, in a different facility, and what led me to that, I got a DUI in August of 2016, and then I was like, okay, I need to get myself into treatment. Um, I needed to look good for the court system um, because then my next date was until November. So I just found a treatment center. I was like, yep, I'm going to go. When I left there, uh, I was didn't really know what to do. There wasn't really a transition plan. So someone recommended like Pride IOP. So I started here at Pride IOP, was sober for a little bit, um, realized I wasn't getting UAs, probation wasn't UAing me, and just kind of the slippery slope of had a drink here and there on the weekends, and then it escalated to being every day. Um, that also led me not to showing up to work, uh, and kind of I was I just wasn't present. It was it felt like I'm gonna die if I continue to drink, or I'm gonna die if I can't have that drink. So then um, around fall of 2017. I had called into work a few days, and my wife came in and kind of saw me on the floor, called 911, and I decided that it was time to go back. Um, and I looked into pride Impatient So that's where it all started.
1: Yeah, so just to get the timeline straight, you had gone to treatment, relapsed, Mm -hmm. and that was in 2016, and Mm -hmm. then you went back the same year in 2016?
2: No, I went back um, the next year, so essentially a year later, like September 2017, but leading up, I would say like March till September, my drinking just took off. I had like the interlock, and so I would time my drinking at night and kind of calculate how can I blow into this in the morning to get to work. There'd be times where I knew I wouldn't blow like at the zero level, so it would like flag probation. um, And I would just make up these really crazy lies um, to my wife and say, oh, this is broken. I need to recalibrate it. And I'd take an Uber to work and then someone from work would bring me back home. Mm -hmm. So it was really a messed up system. It was kind of like living two lives. And then there was even at a point that my wife is like, before we go to bed, I want you to blow and prove that you're sober. But then she would go shower or do a few things and I'd have something hidden. Um, and it got even bad enough where I was like, I can't afford Ubers. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night to try like drink or eat things to try sober up by the time it'd be
0: time to drive to work.
1: Mm. Wow.
0: So the first time you went to treatment, where you're like, this is BS, I'm just doing this for the court system, or were you like, no, I need to go through this? It was a little bit of both, like waking up in jail and
2: realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm here for at least 72 hours. I had a careless back in uh, 2013, I believe. I At that time, when I blew like a .10, I was like, oh, I don't have a problem. I just made a bad choice or I didn't eat like all those justifications. But by the time in 2016, I was drinking every day, I was drinking and driving a lot. And so I woke up and I was just terrified and I'm like, I need help. Um, it was very, like I had a negative stigma in my mind of going to treatment, I failed, people are gonna judge me, everybody's going to know. So it was a little bit mixture of both, but once I got to treatment, it's like I was counting down the days to leave. I didn't feel a connection. Um, There weren't many queer people there. I was one of two lesbians, probably out of 40 people. It was co-ed. So I was there and I was just like, all right, I'm doing this. Let's get out.
1: Mm -hmm. And when you say um, there, you're referring to the treatment center you went to first. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole different dynamic, too, because on one hand, there's the stigma of being, you know, having a drinking problem or substance use disorder. And then there's an additional stigma of being in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And so it's like. Grappling both of those at the same time is a really heavy burden. Right.
2: To Especially like I'd be sitting there and there are some people like you can kind of tell when people are accepting and loving and then those that are like, oh, you're weird. <laughs> um, so when my, my my wife would come visit, it was I would feel a bunch of people staring. And even as like since a young kid, I've just felt like everybody's looking at me. I'm different. I'm not super f- feminine presenting, so there's something different or something wrong with you. Um, And so I just didn't feel like I was all in um, and could be like myself and try to work on some issues um, that I had.
1: I experienced something very similar with that because I am um, also part of the community of gay male. And, like, it just always felt like um, growing up, like, I was so paranoid of, like, running in gym class or presenting femininely. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are like, what are you talking about? Like, that's all in your own head or, like, these anxieties that I think are there might not even be there. Mm -hmm. And then other times they're totally there. Right. And Mm -hmm. so... Being in a space where you're like one of 40 people and you're the only person on your island is is hard, especially when you're supposed to try and battle these internal Mm -hmm. demons.
2: Exactly. And I felt like when I was at Pride, like the sexuality piece, I didn't realize it was such a big piece to something I struggled with. So being able to be in a safe space to work through those issues, like some internal homophobia feeling like, oh, I'm different. I don't want to be this way, but I also don't want to be straight and live a lie as well. Mm -hmm. So it was super welcoming and just, like, full of, like, acceptance and love from day one when I walked in the doors.
0: Mm -hmm. Will you expand on your internalized homophobia a little bit? Because I think we brought it up in previous episodes, but no one's really dove into that topic before. Um, Can you just kind of talk about your background, where you think that, like, came from, how Mm -hmm. that, like, manifested in you?
2: Yeah, um, I remember the like, being in an elementary school, like, first grade, like, let's partner up, be boyfriend, girlfriend, or whoever on the bus, and... It was different for me. I remember going into my classroom and seeing my teacher and I was like, oh my gosh, she's beautiful or other like classmates. And I was like, why am I having these feelings? Something's wrong with me. Like, this isn't okay." because I didn't know anybody in the community or even what like the community was. And I was taught like, this is not okay. It's man and a woman. And so that was kind of how I portrayed things. Um, And I continued to have these, like, crushes come up and just kind of stuff it down. And so I'd even portray myself as homophobic and being, like, ew, gross. If, like, middle school, high school, I started seeing it, seeing people in the community, um, shows, movies. And it was just something that I kind of stuffed down. Mm -hmm. And then um, also, like, with bullying, like, calling me derogatory, like, homophobic names And I always would say, I'm a tomboy, I'm athletic, you know, and just kind of like learning that this isn't okay kind of turned into like the hatred of this secret that I was holding down because I couldn't tell anybody that nothing was safe. Like all of the systems that I had around me were telling me this is not okay.
1: And then when everything around you is telling you that, like how can you not start to think it at some level or another? And you talk about like, I don't know. Like that's who you are, and if you hate the thing that you are, how mm-hmm. are you gonna succeed in anything you do?
2: Right, and it's like toes in the water kind of thing. Like, oh, I um, have a crush on this person. Maybe let's go on a date, but I'm not gonna like label it as anything. Like they're my friend, and then people would say, "Are you two like dating?" And it's like you retract, and it's like, all right, I need to be dating a boy. Mm -hmm. And so I had boyfriends throughout high school and I mean, it was just like empty. It didn't fulfill anything like the companionship or the connectedness. It just was like, if this is it, like this isn't the life that I want. Mm be single
0: forever at that point (laughs) honestly Mm -hmm. so I identify with as a lesbian as well and so um I just find so many parallels in my story to your story because like no one ever tells you that you have that option to be gay like you see gay men Mm -hmm. I think are more prevalent than um women in relationships together and so for me like that I didn't even know that was an option um so I'm kind of curious when did you figure out that that was like something that you could be or was that like always kind of how you felt
2: um I mean I think it's Like, I mean, I might date myself as older now, like AOL, dial-up internet, like chat rooms, things like that. It was kind of exploring because it wasn't something that was talked about. Sexuality in general wasn't something that I was, um, like, had an open conversation with anybody about. So it was more so the internet, chat rooms, MySpace. Mm -hmm. I started adding all these um, people that identified as lesbians and talking. So that's kind of how... I, I guess, started exposing myself to those things, but it was very, like, hidden, and I still felt like this is such a dark secret. I can't be this way. I can't share this part of me with the world. Mm
0: -mm. Do you think that perpetuated your use? I would definitely say that because
2: I felt like... I was just disconnected from a bunch of things. And so it was almost like living a double life. And I think a lot of that through like relationships as well because of that. Um, And even my alcoholism, living a double life with like lying and hiding and trying to keep my stories straight. So I definitely think that was a reason of like excess. I went to college up in North Dakota. The community was super small. There'd be like a monthly drag show where people from like It was in Grand Forks, so a lot of the athletes were in the community, but then you'd have people that would come from hours away and, like you know, the oil fields, all that stuff. So we are, and, yeah.
1: we're both, Kaylee and I, both UND grads. Oh,
2: that's me. And so yeah. when you
1: say drag show in Grand Forks, we know I, the one. I yeah. know the one. Yes. <laughs> because there's only one.
2: Yes. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, it was just funny. So everybody would come out in the woodworks. You'd be at those drag shows and I'd see like classmates or just other people. And it's kind of like you look at each other like, oh, I knew. Um, so, but if, you go downtown Grand Forks to party and I wear men's clothing so people would just stare mm-hmm. because it's like, All right, and I'm not you're not gonna see me in a dress. Mm-hmm. That's not my style, but everybody's just staring. So again I wanna kinda crawl under a rock and be like, I don't wanna
0: be out there, I can't be myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, I worked at a bar actually in Grand Forks and all the patrons would be like, you're a freak because you're like Mm -hmm. sleeping with women. And that's kind of just the culture of that of that area.
2: Yeah, I was a bartender, too. And Mm -hmm. I mean, all these microaggressions we face, Mm -hmm. too. You haven't met the right guy or um, I could show you a good time. Those things that people just assume like no, it's not okay to be yourself because I can make you feel this
1: or you just haven't met this correct person. That is, wow, what an interesting thing that we all have in common. We all uh-huh. worked at bars in Grand Forks, North Dakota, <laughs> and we're all now sitting at an LGBTQ-specific <laughs> treatment center. So I'm full circle. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I want to ask is what was the thing that then clicked for you going to residential a second time. Was it, had anything to do with like your external circumstances with your wife, job, what was it?
2: Um, For the first time, my wife, I like, my life just seems like a blur, maybe the month like leading up to going to inpatient. Um, and she had never set like a hard boundary of I'm leaving you, but towards, um, that night that she found me, she was actually in a separate bedroom. Like she had moved out of our bedroom and I was like, okay, I'm actually going to leave her. And I realized I have to do this for myself because I, I just felt so sick, so ill, And I really didn't want to live or go on this way, but I also was terrified of addressing issues um, through treatment. But once I went in there um, into inpatient, I started to, like, laugh. That's probably one of the biggest things that I noticed is I was genuinely laughing. I felt connected to people. They saw me. I felt validated. And it really, like, went through, like, you know, mental health. And I just felt like a whole community. And it was a safe space. So I felt like, okay, now I can let my walls down and actually work on things that I need to that are going to help me um, in my life of recovery. And then when I left treatment, I remember just at work I was standing and it felt like a physical something just lifted from me off my shoulders. And I was like, I'm never going to drink again. And I don't want to drink again. And since that day, I mean, luckily I haven't had many cravings and things like that versus... Previously, I'd been trying to get sober for four years um, before treatment and the obsession and like constant relapse. It was just overbearing.
1: When you say obsession, um, just obsession with drinking or?
2: Yeah, definitely. Just drinking was my main thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I could drink um, with the interlock, it made it more complicated, but it was constantly like get done with work, um, do whatever you need to do and then drink. For the longest time, I like think my drinking stayed where it was because I was like, I'm a high functioning alcoholic. Like I have a full time job, I'm coaching, I'm in grad school, um, like all of those things going. I didn't have those big losses until like leading up to Pride Impatient, where I was calling into work and something needed to change, or I was going, going to uh, lose my job.
1: And can you explain for people who don't know or who's listening out there what interlock is and what you mean by that? Yeah,
2: interlock. So when you have a DUI, interlock is this device, like a breathalyzer, and you have to blow zeros, and then your car will start. Mm -hmm. And then every so 10 to 30 minutes, it'll just beep, and you have to continue the blow. If you don't or you fail, your car won't start. So it's kind of a way to um, have people that have DUIs and have lost their license be able to still drive, but sober.
0: So after you went to residential treatment, you did go to IOP, Mm -hmm. outpatient treatment. What was the benefit of you continuing care?
2: I was I had a great group of people um, that I went in with and then we all transitioned to IOP. So Mm -hmm. it was like we were super close. And so we transitioned from seeing each other all day, all night to now a few hours um, in the evening through IOP. And I think that was one of the things that truly saved me. Um, the year prior, my transition home was so like, it just was so chaotic. So I didn't stay sober that long versus when I left pride, I had this great plan. I went to sober housing. I wasn't too excited about it, but it was something I needed to do. Um, It was not um, like a queer specific um, sober house. It was Different one, but there, everybody was accepting of me, Mm -hmm. and so I did that. Um, My wife and I agreed that I would have to like at least six months sober, and that was really hard because at the end of every month, I'm like, I want to come home, I want to come home, and it was like, nope, you need to do this. And then um, just coming to Pride was really helpful um, as I transitioned back to work, and I slowed down a lot. When I left inpatient, I still didn't work for like four weeks just so I could focus on my recovery and transitioning back um, into like the community and everyday life. So that really helped just slow down things, get my community and have like a safe space to continue to process things.
1: That's so awesome. And how like great that you have such a strong support system in your wife to do, Mm -hmm. you know, go through that. And even like, that must be really hard to have to tell someone you love so much, like, no, like we made a deal and like, let's stick to it. Yeah.
2: well, and she was it was her having that boundary, because I'm trying to talk, you know, like the alcoholic self, like, oh, it'll be good. I'll do this, da-da-da-da, make a list, and I want to come home. But it was really her, like, keeping me, like, this is my boundary. And it was also healthy for us, because to this day, we'll talk about it. If I wasn't out of the house for those six months, we wouldn't be where we're at today. So as hard, as painful, uncomfortable as it was, it's really something that... Um, created a stronger bond between the both of
0: us. That's incredible. How do you maintain sobriety today? How do you put that at the forefront of your life?
2: Yeah, um, one of the things, or the most important thing is just being honest. When I walked into Pride Impatient, I was like, I am the biggest liar. I'm not just gonna tell half of the truth, you know, and leave parts out. So that was something that I really carried um, after treatment is just being honest, also being open and proud to be in recovery. Like recovery is great. And as I'm telling people that I'm in recovery or I don't drink, I'm sober, a lot of people are like same with me too. So, and people are very supportive. I thought, okay, this is gonna be weird that I'm sober. I'm in recovery. People aren't gonna accept me and they're not gonna be around me. And it's been the complete opposite. There are a couple like times where people are like, you're weird or you can't just have one. And it's like, nah, you don't want me to have one because it doesn't end well. It doesn't end at one. And just finding new hobbies. My life was get done with work. There's a couple bars that lit um, right behind my house, go to the bars, drink, go to bed. And so now when I walk my dog and we pass those bars, it's the same people on those bar stools. So it's, a reminder of like, this is where I would be, this would be my life. Because I thought, hey, these are my friends, you know, the regulars, but it was just someone to take away some of the loneliness, but I still was pretty empty inside
1: sitting up at that bar um, every night. I wonder if you can expand a little bit on the lying thing because I think that that's something that's obviously extraordinarily common Mm -hmm. when we talk about people with addiction problems because it's like they're trying to produce themselves to other people they're trying to produce their perceptions Mm -hmm. of what other people see
2: yeah I think I was taught or like learned to like compartmentalize a lot of things when I was in college I was in this relationship where I really couldn't be out with and there was an imbalance of power with this person It was the same, like with my sexuality, I felt like I had to lie or tell people how straight I am, prove how straight I am. So with all these things, especially in college, it felt like I was living a double life. I have this relationship that nobody can know about, but then I have, I played college soccer as well. So I had all these teammates and I have that life. So it was two separate lives. So it was just kind of one of those things. The more that I lied, the easier that it was. And there's plenty of people that knew I was lying, even with my alcoholism where, you know, you're so intoxicated and you're telling people you're sober. Like it's pretty obvious, like when I'm intoxicated. So that just kept me really like sick and ill. Um, But I also had negative reinforcements, like through work, I would um, receive like positive reviews, um, take on more tasks. I coached and a lot of families or players would call me a role model and it's just like that internal like huh takes like a gut punch of you don't know everything that's going on so that guilt and that shame would lead me to continue to lie to like say this is I'm such a great person so
0: yeah, all uh, alcoholics and addicts should get Oscars because it's just um, incredible to even get rewarded for lying. Almost. Yeah. yeah. And so.
1: Well, and I actually recently read there's a very famous author, Augustin Burroughs, who wrote a memoir called Dry, and he talks mm-hmm. about his use and how when he was drunk or under the influence, it was like this world where he got to be free of all the things that we just talked about. Like he's, and he actually said word for word, like, I have won so many Academy Awards while drunk in my own brain." like i couldn't experience in real life because it's just so painful to be myself and you know using allows me to be something outside of myself
2: and when people believe us or believed me i was like all right this is okay because i still am viewed as this great worker or whatever it be in their eyes so it was another way i'm just hating myself and everybody else loves me now that i'm in recovery i'm so much more productive I am present, I'm more patient. It's not like I'm rushing to get things done because I wanna go and run to get to the bar.
1: Well, AJ, thank you so much for being here with us. I think your story is so universally understood by so many people in this community. So thanks for being here.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices.
0: You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts.
1: Don't forget to follow and subscribe.
0: We'll see you next time.